Well, we are continuing in the book of Ephesians this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to do the end of chapter 5 through the beginning of chapter 6. And there's kind of a lot going on in this text that requires a lot of explanation, at least to our current audience. And so we're actually just going to jump right in and read it first. Um, and so if you want to turn there, um, you can turn to page 1039 um, in the Pew Bible that's in front of you. Um, or you can follow along in um, the Version Bible app or in the Brentwood Bible app as well. And so we're going to read 22 through 6-9. Um, so let's read that together. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church." since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So, the question I'm going to start with is, why are we talking about this in 2022? Because some of you may be thinking, some of this sounds outdated, like it applied 2,000 years ago, but it doesn't apply today. Um, but is it outdated? Is it irrelevant? Is it sexist? Is it racist? Um, that's sort of what we're going to work through this morning. And if we don't talk about it, um, you also have to decide, what do we do with it, right? Do we just ignore it? Do we dismiss it? Um, we can do that, but this isn't the only place in Scripture that this shows up. It shows up in First Peter and other places in Paul's writing. And I would argue this concept of submission to authority of different kinds actually is a thread that runs all the way through Scripture from the beginning. And so this morning, you may be in different situations, and you may say, I am not currently parenting any kids, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, maybe, or in a weird way, I don't have any slaves, so this doesn't apply to me either. Or I've been married for over 40 years, so I've made it this far. Why do I need to know more or learn anything or change anything that I've been doing? Well, the short answer is, 
if you are a believer in Christ and you believe the Bible is God's word with authority in your life, you have to do something with this text. Um, it is talking to you. It is informing us. It will help us. And so we're going to work through it. And I hope we'll see that some of the heat and controversy that this passage sometimes gets in bigger conversations um, isn't really necessary. So the, the first thing we're going to start with is just why does this matter? Why does the text like this important? Um, the simple version, which is what I just said, this is scripture. And so we have to deal with it. We need to deal with it. And so we're just going to set, set the stage, kind of give some background for where we're at so that we can understand before we move on. Because I think it's, there's some crucial things I think we need to understand before we try to interpret these texts. Um, one is to understand what's happening in verse 22 and following, we need to go back up to verse 21 and the ones before that. And so verse 21 says, right, we submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And so this is Paul kind of ending his uh, statement from last week um, about being filled with the Spirit, um, singing hymns and giving thanks and submitting to one another. And so this is part of a continuation of Paul's explaining what it means to live by the Spirit, and then he expands on that in three different areas. But what does it actually look like to submit to one another in the fear of Christ? Right? When we talk about the fear of Christ, we're talking about love and worship and awe. And so I think the real question Paul is answering here is, how does submitting in the fear of Christ translate to other people, right? We understand what it means to submit to Christ and follow him, but how does it interact with our relationships on earth? And specifically, Paul is going to be talking about household relationships. And so in our passage, we see very similar phrases, right? In 22, submit to your husbands. Uh, 6.1, obey your parents. The word for obey is also the word for submit. And then in 6.5, it's kind of obey as you would Christ. And so our next question is, how do we submit to the Lord or obey in the Lord? And this question, I think, is important because it sets the tone for how we understand everything else in the passage, how we understand our responsibility. Because how we understand submitting to Christ informs how we submit to others. And so practically, when we submit to Christ or we come under his leadership, we say things like, well, I understand that God wants what is best for me, and so I just follow him and go wherever he leads me to go. I trust his authority in my life, and so I just follow. It's easy to submit and to obey and to follow and to trust God because we think he has what's best for us at heart. And I think that's going to carry through all the way through, or it should. Um, we also need to get some clarity on what submission or biblical submission actually means. Um, it's often misunderstood or sometimes it gets wrapped up in our cultural views of equality. So when it's talking about this, it's not indicating inferiority. It doesn't mean you lose your identity or your voice. It doesn't mean blind obedience or passivity. It means giving oneself up to someone else. It means voluntarily coming under the authority of someone else, essentially to complete a whole. Um, you may think of the word support to help you understand this, right? A wife submits to her husband when she voluntarily organizes or comes under the authority of her husband so she can support and complete her husband. I can't help but think of the movie Jerry Maguire, if you've seen that, and the big line is, you complete me, right? It's that kind of concept um, that we're talking about. 
And so we, we, I, another, just another introductory thing is we can think about this as equality as persons, but authority in roles, right? Because we know from Genesis, God created man and woman in his likeness. Both are equal image bearers in Christ. One is not greater than the other. One doesn't have more of God's image than the other. We are equal across the board. But we are also not identical. We are different in different ways. And each of us is different within that, right? There aren't just two types of people, men and women. There's millions of variations even in those two categories, right? Everybody is different. And these different people complement each other. Right? It's a partnership where each one brings their unique contribution. And I believe that in order to embrace the biblical perspective, we need to hold the equality of persons and the complementarity of the sexes at the same time together. And that's not always easy to do. But this pattern of authority and submission is shown throughout Scripture. Right? We didn't make this up. I didn't make this up. Paul didn't make this up. God set this pattern, I would argue, from the beginning. And just as a side note, most of the times when God talks about authority in our lives, we're all for it and we understand it, right? We don't have any issue with it. We don't have any issue of God being authority over us. We really don't have any issue, well, unless you're a child, of parents being over their children, right? Or Jesus over their church or pastors over congregations, but it seems when we talk about husbands over wives, that one takes a little more getting used to. So what Paul is trying to get us to see is that submitting to one another means submitting to others according to the authority and order established by God, which is why he doesn't just give us one example, but he gives us several examples in a row. I also want to understand you to understand this. The views that Paul is giving in this passage would have been revolutionary for his time. Right? Sometimes when we come to the Bible, we bring all of our experience and all of what the 2022 and all the last 10 or so years with all of the movements and all of the things that have happened, and we bring that into the text to say, oh, this is what it means, and it feels so out of date to what we're talking about in today's world. But Paul, for his time, was ahead of the curve. He was ahead. And so we have to understand his culture, not move it into our culture. And so just to help us understand that, in Paul's time, among the Jews, the Romans, and the Greeks, women were seen as secondary citizens with no rights. Um, the Jews prayed every day thanking God that he didn't make them a woman. Um, that's how they started every day. Um, he, a man could divorce his wife simply by writing a bill of divorce, and the wife could not do that. The same thing was true for children as well. Fathers could basically do whatever they wanted with their families, including sentencing their family members to death. Um, this is the situation that Paul is writing it to. So when he's talking about loving your wife and not angering your children, that would be way further, way ahead of what people in the time would be seeing. And so we'll see husbands loving and sacrificing for their wives, fathers loving and supporting their children. This is going to be way ahead of what Paul is doing in his culture. 
But I think the principles that we're going to see are going to be helpful and beneficial for us no matter where you are um, in life. So let's keep working through this to help us to understand. And so first we're going to see, starting in 22 and following, that wives submit and husbands love. So the first part in verses 22 through 24, we see the call is for wives to submit to their husbands. And what this really means is to come under the authority and care of their husbands. They submit as to the Lord. So they submit in the same way as to God in trust and in love. And in doing this, they are being obedient to God's design um, just to clarify, this is only to their husband, not to all men or other husbands. Um, some of the other places it says, it says to your own husband, just to clarify that, just in case anybody wanted to like run off the deep end with this. I'm not really worried about you guys doing that, but I just want to make things as clear as I can on this topic. Again, he's not talking about inferiority or intelligent or maturity. These are the roles that are set up by God. Right? A woman has equal rights, equal self-determination. I think it's perfectly fine and acceptable, that's a weird way to say it, for her to have a career and work outside the home, just like her husband does. None of those things go against these verses or what other scriptures tell us. Um, the Bible does ask that mothers take responsibility for their families and caring for their children. So what would that look like? Well, don't work so much that you don't spend any time with your family or do anything in helping to take care of them. Um, coincidentally, I would say the same thing to fathers is you shouldn't work so much that you don't ever see your family or help raising them. And so it kind of goes both ways. And so God calls for submission. I would make exceptions for situations where it is dangerous to do that and you are in a dangerous situation um, as a spouse or as a wife, or if your husband is leading you to do something that is unbiblical. I think those are some exceptions. There's obviously going to be more as you get into more specific things, but generally that's what I would say. And that's really all I'm going to say about this, because if you notice, um, that's really all these verses say about wives. Um, the rest is actually addressed to husbands. And if you notice, there's three times as many verses that go towards the husbands that it does to the wives. But this first part gets all of the attention, right? So we're going to spend more time on the husband side of things because that's what the text does. And so we're going to keep going. So in verse 25, you see it switches to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. That's your basic commandment. So a, a husband is called to love. He is called to lead his wife and his family. Right? He needs to understand that God has placed you there for the good of your family. Now, you may not do, or your husband or father may not do all he is supposed to do perfectly, um, and that's okay. But it's a learning and growing process for all of us. Um, I do also believe there is some level of accountability to God for how you have led and loved your wife and your family. And so what exactly does it ask husbands to do? Well, it asks them to love. First it says, love as Christ, and then to love as themselves. It's the husband's love for his wife that makes her submission a reasonable thing or even a good thing to do. It requires um, taking the initiative, having integrity, and serving your wife, of lightening the load of those who are under your care. Um, leadership involves managing your house, not dominating it, not ruling it like a dictator. 
The goal is to create an environment where each person can achieve their maximum potential. So it's my job as a husband and it's my job as a father to make sure that my wife and my children become all that God has created them to be under my leadership which means I'm doing a lot of sacrificing, I'm doing a lot of helping them, I'm doing a lot of supporting them and encouraging them and praying with them and teaching with them. So just to get into a couple of specifics, I think this includes the idea of acceptance, right? Of us accepting who is in our family and where they are, both in age um, or in, in spirituality, and we're not judging, like, I wish my wife was more mature, or I wish she could do this or do that or do this other thing. That's not what we're doing, right? It's accepting who God has given you as a wife, of understanding her intrinsic wor- worth as God's gift to you. It also requires sacrifice, right? Doing something, placing the wife's needs before your own, Doing something that she hates to do for her, right? Involves self-denial, such as giving something up, something you would enjoy to do something that your wife would enjoy, right? Because the example is Christ, right? He gives, the husband gives himself up for his wife just as Christ gave himself up to the church. It's to love in a self-sacrificial manner. So if your goal is to be sacrificial and to help your wife become all that she is meant to be in Christ, that should take care of like 90% of the complaints against this um, concept, which usually is domination and tyranny and all of these other things. Right? I think if this is actually done right and it's done well, it actually creates a sacrificial loving environment where everyone thrives. Right? Because if I'm responsible to create a place where everybody else gets everything they need, grows spiritually, and becomes all that God created them to be, who wouldn't sign up for that? Who wouldn't sign up to be in a place where someone is responsible for me to become all that God has created me to be? Right? That's what this concept is. That's what it's supposed to look like. Right? And so I know people go a little crazy on this one, but that's what I believe it is. And then Paul continues to talk about how and why husbands love their wives. And this is connected to the idea of biblical marriage where the two become one. We see this in verses 28 through 31. And so his point, right, in this concept, he says, it makes it easy to love your wife because she is considered one with you, right? Nobody neglects to love themselves, We make sure that we eat, we make sure that we sleep, we make sure that we get some downtime, that we try to grow, and we don't even really think about that most of the time. Most of the time, you just take care of yourself automatically. You don't have to remind yourself to do some of those things. We just do it. It's built into us. And so Paul is saying that caring for your wife should be exactly the same way, right? It should be a natural expression of our love and care for them, right? Verses uh, 29, it talks about care or um, providing or nourishing or feeding them, right? That provides security. And then it talks about care or cherishing, about protecting and watching out for. And then what Paul does is he references Genesis 2.24, right? To tie this concept, like I said earlier, all the way back to creation, right? And so we see verse 24 that says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh, 
But the, notice it says why at the beginning of that verse. This is why. And the why points back to Genesis 2.23, which says this. It says, And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And so these verses are Adam reflecting on the fact that part of him was physically taken to create Eve. He contributed a rib to this process. And so God used the one to make two. And in marriage, what we're basically doing is we're restoring that, right? The two become one. So this is the most fundamental and significant tie between two people in the bond of marriage. And all throughout this, right, this is, there's this analogy of Christ and the church. Right? He is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. We submit to Christ as the head of the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ makes the church holy. Those things are our example for how to do this, for how do we live this out. Now, obviously, you can't carry all of those over. Um, you can't save anyone. You can't die for anyone's sins. But what we can do is we can sacrifice. We can love. We can help our wives to be more holy. Right, and that's why you've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again, right? The, the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. The purpose of marriage is to make you holy, right? It's a partnership that does those things together. <clears throat> and so we've talked about kind of what that looks like, but the reason behind everything that we do is Christ's love. It's Christ's love. We love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, in the way that he gave himself up. He gave up his rights, his responsibilities, and he gave them over to die for us, right, so that we could have life, so that we could become all that we were created to be. And the same is true for us. We sacrifice, we give things up, we love them so that they can become all that they were created to be. But Paul, in his examples, doesn't just stop with husbands and wives and say, this is the only one, this is the one you should focus on. He continues with other household relationships. And so we're looking at children, and so the call is for children to obey and for parents to support. And so we see this in verses 1 and through 4 at the beginning of chapter 6. So children, obey your parents because this is right. And then later, honor your father and mother. And so he connects this to the Ten Commandments, right? And specifically the Fifth Commandment, and it came with a promise, right? If you honor your father and mother, he promised a long life in the land that God would lead them to. Essentially, when you get to the promised land, and if you honor your father and mother, I'll give you a long life. And so kids... Um, if you're, my kids are watching at home, I think, so this is for you. Um, God is asking you to obey your parents. God has given you parents to love you, to help you, to take care of you, and to guide you in life. This means that obeying your parents isn't just to make your life miserable or to make their life easier, but it's actually for your good. 
So even though it might seem tough to be asked to clean your room or to get up early or to brush your teeth, they're trying to care for you and help you become a healthy person. So just keep that in mind next time your parents are asking you to do something. But on this one as well, it doesn't just stop with children. It also gives us the flip side, right? He doesn't just tell kids to listen to their parents. He also gives father, and I'm going to include parents in this here, don't stir up your anger. Um, your translation may have don't exasperate your children. And so what does that mean? Well, it's a qualifier of what comes after that in the verse of bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So basically he's saying, don't do the opposite of that. And I think it means, what does it mean to exasperate or to stir up anger? I think it means something like this. Um, don't treat your kids like they owe you something, right? Don't boss them around unnecessarily. Don't use them to get what's good for you and not what's good for them. Don't ask them to do something and then complain about how they do it if they have legitimately done their best. Don't only point out how they could have done better. Don't just focus on their shortcomings, but encourage them. Don't change the rules on them without a discussion. Don't treat them with anger out of nowhere. And if you've been a parent before or are currently a parent, um, that list is way harder than it should be, in my opinion, or at least it is for me. Maybe you guys are better parents than I am. Um, but, and, and maybe... Um, I anyway, when we do mess up those things, which I think we're all bound to do, <clears throat> our job as parents is actually to seek the forgiveness of our children, to say, I messed up. I have led you to do something or I've done something to you that is not biblical, that does not demonstrate God's love, and I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me? <clears throat> right? That's not a concept we talk about a lot, but I think it is important to actually ask the forgiveness of your kids so they can see what that looks like. <clears throat> and so our job as parents, excuse me, to demonstrate <clears throat> God's love to our children so that they can have a practical example of who God is. And I know that's a tall order, which is why excuse, excuse me, which is why Paul spent most of the book explaining that we are made new and we are given the Holy Spirit so that we could even get close to what this looks like and what he's asking us to do because we're not going to make it if we try to do this on our own. And so what we do is we love, we extend grace, we understand all kids are different, we encourage, we pray, we guide, we teach, and yes, we correct, but we correct out of love. We teach them how to live in this world as believers of God and followers of Christ. We teach them in today's world how to navigate conversations and issues that they're going to be dealing with as they go to school, as they grow up, as they go out into the world. We give them the tools and the information they need to be strong in their faith. And if I'm honest, this is the same call that all of us have anyway. This is basically a call to make disciples with your children. 
to teach them how to follow Christ, how to grow up into maturity in Him. And so we honor and support and encourage our parents and our children together so that we can all grow up together. And then we come to the third example that Paul gives us. And I'm aware that this next set of relationships uses terminology and comes with a lot of baggage um, in today's world. When we say slavery in 21st century America, it has a context. It has a feeling. It has a connotation. And one of the hardest parts about reading the Bible is understanding what we are bringing to the text and only reading what is there. Not bringing our cultural understanding and our experiences or reading too much into the text and seeing things that aren't there. Right? Remember what Paul is actually doing here. He's working his way through house, common household relationships one by one, and he's showing how we live those out as believers. And so for Paul, this is just the next household relationship that he sees that we need to understand how to interact with. And so in this side, what we're going to see is that slaves obey and masters care. And we see this in 5 through 9 of chapter 6. Now, just to give you some background of why Paul thought this was important to talk about, it was estimated that one-third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. So this would include about one-third of a city like Ephesus. So imagine one-third of the city of Austin are slaves. And so I think it would be strange for Paul to ignore something that one out of three people would be dealing with, right? Slaves were an important part of family life, but they were also subject to exploitation and abuse, just like we would expect. I also want to make it really clear, if you read this text, Paul is not saying that slavery is right or if it's wrong. He's just teaching you how to deal with it as believers, whether you are a slave or whether you are a master. So he wants you to understand that being in Christ, which is what we're talking about all throughout Ephesians, <clears throat> changes how you live in these situations. This is Paul talking about how to deal with lawfully constituted authority. <clears throat> and just so you know, Sorry, I don't really know what's going on this morning. Um, just so you know, this kind of slavery became less and less and less and eventually died out the more that Christianity spread. So the more that people became Christians, the more that people submitted themselves to following Christ, the less this actually happened. So I know we've in recent history, we've maybe done, not done so well, um, but at least in those times when people lived as Christ intended them to live, it did lessen this situation. So we understand that. We kind of understand the concept. So now, what do, what do we do with it? Right? Because last time I checked, none of us have slaves in our house. It's not something we do regularly. It's not something we talk about. So how do we apply that to our current time, to our current situations? And I think it can be done, but we have to be um, careful in how we're doing it. Um, we need to remember that Paul was writing specifically for a society where slavery was a legal institution. 
right? And we can carry over some principles that apply to us. Um, we can apply these to employee-employer relationships, I think, or really any legal authority under which we are called to work. And so we're going to kind of leave it at that. Um, if you ever want to have a more in-depth conversation about any of these, you can always come find me and contact me. I'll be glad to answer all of your questions or anything that you have um, on those. But now we're just kind of, kind of, what does this mean for us is kind of where we're at. And so what it's saying is Christian employees should serve their employers with diligence and with integrity and with goodwill. And Christian employers should deal with their employees with integrity and goodwill as well without threatening them. Right? Because the concept is both Christian employees and employers need to realize they have a heavenly master to whom they are accountable for their attitudes and conduct. In addition to that, right, your whole job as living as a Christian is to be a testimony of what this looks like to other people. So the way you work or the way you're a boss or the way you manage or whatever situation you're in, the way that you do that is a testimony to unbelievers for what this looks like. So what does he say specifically in this? Um, basically, he says, um, don't just work hard when somebody is watching you, right? Don't wait till the boss shows up and then, oh yeah, now we're working hard and we're getting things done, right? You don't do that. You work hard all the time, even when nobody's looking. Actually, he uses the phrase kind of, it sort of hints at it here, I think, but it's in another, in Peter, talks about being people pleasers, right? I'm just doing this to please someone or to be seen, it talks about having a good attitude, right? You serve with a good attitude, with respect. On the flip side, right, don't threaten your employees. Don't threaten those that are under your care, under your charge. Not the way to go. And I think on both sides, right, you just treat each other well with respect. And if you treat people with respect, lots of problems seem to disappear. So whatever that is. And so this is what God calls us to do in these situations, and in each of these, he calls us to submit in our houses, in our marriages, with our children, in our work, in the things that God has given us. He has set these out and has ordained certain authorities, and he calls us to organize under those things. So we as individuals, we submit ourselves to God. We come under his care, under his love, under his grace, under his mercy. As a church, as a group together, we submit ourselves to Christ as the head of the church that he is leading us. I am not leading us. The deacons are not leading us. Um, Christ is leading this church. As wives, we are called to submit to our husbands. As children, we are called to submit to our parents. <clears throat> as people, we are called to submit to the legal authorities over us. I think is what it's saying. And all of these things, I think if they are done well, if they are done rightly, if they are done in the way that God prescribes them to, for us to do, are for our good and for our thriving. So the call for us actually is to trust God and this design that he has for our lives. Not to say, I know a better way, <clears throat> or my way is better, or this isn't how it worked, this is outdated and old, and we don't pay attention to this anymore. But to trust what God has created for us, what he has intended for us, <clears throat> and what that looks like in our daily life, in our marriages, as parents, and in our work lives. And so 
really, I think this is a call to trust God and to obey Scripture, which isn't really that radical a thing for us to talk about as believers in Christ, is we just help each other become all that God has created us to be. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you, and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your scripture, for your word, and the way that it challenges us, that it helps us to see um, outside of our own context, to see the principles that are there, the way that you call us to love each other, to care for each other, um, even to submit to one another. So God, I pray that you would just help us to see as we examine scriptures like this and, and reflect on this, that we would just see what you have to say to us, that we wouldn't read things into it, that we wouldn't blow it out of proportion, that we wouldn't add things in, but that we'd just say, what is, what is your word? What is it asking us to do? What is it calling us to do? And how can we do that? How can we serve well? How can we love well? How can we sacrifice for each other well? How can we support and encourage and love one another? Because the, the, the Bible tells us, and I believe that it's true, that all of these things are designed and given to us for our good so that we can thrive so that we can become all that you have created us to be. So God, help us as wives and husbands and children and parents and, and employees and employers and, and everything else that kind of falls into this, that you would help us just to trust you and your design. That what you have given us is good. And yes, it can be twisted and taken and blown out of proportion and, and taken way out of context, but God, just help us to center on your word and what it calls us to do and just trust in you and let everything else kind of sort itself out. So God, help us to submit to you first in all things. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.